Hey, glad you're all here. Uh, parents, if you want to let your children out uh, at this point, you certainly can. Uh, Beth should be in the foyer out there waiting for them. And uh, while the kids are moving around, I'd invite you to grab your Bibles. If you don't have your own Bible, you can uh, grab a Bible in the pew back in front of you. Uh, you can uh, follow on the screen behind me. We continue in our summer sermon series entitled Ask the Pastor, uh, week number seven. We've got wonderful questions, and uh, this morning certainly is, uh, is no exception. Uh, if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Genesis chapter 1. should be very easy for you to find, right? Genesis chapter 1. We will make our way into Genesis chapter 2. And then if you want to sort of uh, find Genesis chapter 38, maybe put your finger there, piece of paper there. That's where we will be heading, oh, momentarily. Um, so again, welcome to Grace. Glad you all are here. Uh, let's pray. And we'll dive into our question for the morning. So if you would do that uh, for me, please. I think all the children are out. Father, we uh, just uh, it's, it's humbling for us to be here. We recognize that we would not be here ap- apart from your drawing grace, apart from your, the, the wooing of your Holy Spirit uh, to do a supernatural work in our hearts and in our lives, to illuminate our, 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 our eyes to who Christ is into the glorious gospel of grace, that he would, though being in the, in the, in the very form and uh, nature of God, would humble himself in obedience to you, Father, and that he would become one of us, that he would be um, Emmanuel, God with us, and that he would uh, be born some 2,000 years ago in a stable to be the God-man. To be the one to live in perfect obedience, uh, meeting your holy requirements, which we all fall short of. And and not only that, but to to die the death that we deserve, to pay the penalty for our sins, bearing uh, our sin and our shame and your wrath so that we would not have to. And Father, thank you that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you rose uh, from the dead, your Son, in victory over sin and over death and over Satan. And we're grateful for his powerful resurrection and that now he is seated at your right hand, awaiting uh, your word to return to judge this world and to bring about a new heavens and a new earth. But until then, you've left us here with a mission and with a purpose to glorify you and to live for you and to share this gospel with others, and we pray that we would be faithful in that. And Father, part of being a faithful follower of yours is to search out your word to modern inventions and questions and challenges that arise. And Lord, it's been our privilege to do that here over the past few weeks, and we would, we would pray for your guidance, that your spirit would be with us as we turn once again to this a pertinent and challenging question. May our hearts be submissive to your word and may our lives then fall in line with your revealed truth. And we pray it for our good and for your glory. And Christ's people said, Amen. Well, one of my favorite uh, professors when I was in seminary, the late great Dallas seminary professor, Dr. Howard Hendricks, affectionately called by his students simply as prof once told the story of a little boy who asked his mother uh, where he came from, where babies came from, and also where, where, where she had come from when she was a baby. And, of course, this made the mother's heart beat a little bit and maybe a little sweat come upon her brow. And so she, in the moment, decided to tell him a bit of a tall tale about babies coming from a beautiful white-feathered bird. The boy received that, and later that day he was playing outside 
with his grandmother, and so he decided to ask his grandmother, well, this, the, the same question, and, uh, well, sort of the same sweat broke out, and uh, a bit of a panic from, from grandmother, and she went on then to tell him sort of a variation of, uh, of a bird story. Well, the next day, the little boy was playing with his friends, and uh, he said, you know what? There hasn't been a normal birth in our family for three generations. Well, and that brings us, as you can guess, to our topic and subject matter for today. Another wonderful question. It reads this way. You can see it on the screen behind me. What does the Bible say about birth control, including permanent types like vasectomies, etc., and so on and so forth? And uh, so you guys just are not giving me a Sunday off here. You know that? All these wonderful questions, you just, I can't get off the hot seat. So here we go. Uh, the short answer is that the Bible really says nothing, I think, directly uh, about birth control, at least as we're talking about it in this particular question. Of course, most uh, forms of birth control that you know we're, we're thinking of when we think about the subject matter are relatively, well, new inventions, right? Uh, medical I- inventions. And so uh, the Bible doesn't directly have a verse that mentions the idea of birth control. However... However, I think the Bible uh, gives us broad principles, if you will, sort of overarching biblical truths that um, put together inform our thinking about this particular matter. And the way I I see um, these truths, as we'll sort of uh, look through sort of three of them, I I sort of see these biblical principles as guardrails, as guardrails, so Imagine you're driving down the road, and, well, to your left and to your right, what do you have? Well, in case you happen to veer to the right, and in case you happen to veer to, to the left, you, you have guardrails. And, and guardrails are there to do what? Well, they're there for our protection. They're there to keep us from going too far left and, and too far right, and, and to keep us sort of on the right path. And, and what we're going to look at today is, is, is what I view as three guardrails, right? Three sort of biblical, overarching uh, teachings and truths that sort of uh, form the guardrails to answer this question, what does the Bible say about birth control? So we will see three guardrails this morning. Guardrail number one is what I will call a, a biblical understanding of marriage and sex and children. Marriage and sex and children. That's sort of guardrail number one. Guardrail number two I will call the guardrail of proper motivation. The guardrail of proper motivation. And then the, the third guardrail that I think Scripture reveals that impacts our answer to this particular question is the fact that God is both sovereign and we are both responsible. That is, God is sovereign over our family planning, but we are responsible with our sexuality and with the decisions that we make related to birth control. So, so three guardrails, we're going to, to walk through them. But before we do that, just a, a quick caveat, if you will. What I'm going to do for the sake of this sermon, a uh, wonderful question from one of you, is I'm going to lump together all forms of birth control. So I know the, I know the question asked particularly sort of uh, permanent types of birth control and not permanent types of birth control. And, and my purpose is not to, to talk about all of the different 
types of birth control. I'm just going to lump those together because I know that they are different in how they work, and we'll talk about that at the end of our sermon, and whether they're meant to be temporary or, or permanent. Practically speaking, the aim of all birth control is the same, correct? So, so we're just going to lump those together for our, for our sake. So, are you ready? Guardrail number one, a biblical understanding of, of God's design for marriage and how marriage is linked with, with sexual activity. And then, of course, the relationship that is obvious to all of us in here uh, between sexual activity and children. Okay, So let's begin in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, just like we did last week, so much of our understanding of who we are and what God has designed, these fundamental institutions like marriage, we see uh, for us in the book of beginnings. And so we must turn to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. So the first guardrail from keeping us from driving off the bridge of, of holiness, if you will, and biblical truth, is what God tells us about the first um, institution of marriage. And so we begin in chapter 1, and if you want to take a look starting in verse 27, we get the general account of God's creation of both mankind as male and female, and implied the creation of the first marriage. As we've talked about before, uh, it's worth reiterating that what we see in Genesis 1 is a general overview of God's creation, including his institution of marriage. Uh, and then in chapter 2, we see more details, right? Well, 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 how did that first marriage occur, right? What happened? What, you know, how did God do that? And so we begin in Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 27. The text reads this way, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And so what we see, for starters, in Genesis chapter 1 is that it was God's unique mandate, God's unique mandate for the first couple, Adam and Eve, to reproduce. Is that not very clear from the text, right? God created male and he created female. And we see in Genesis 2 that he brings them together in the first marriage and that it was his design, his his unique design, both for Adam and Eve, that their marriage would then be consummated with sexual activity that would then result in what? Children, right? Be fruitful and multiply. God's plan for humanity depended upon it. So here we have children, children, revealed as a um, inherent and unique to Adam and Eve. God's God's plan for both marriage and sex is is implied here, but the idea that marriage is to result in in children is readily apparent. But that's not all, right? We see the emphasis on childbearing in Genesis chapter one. But we get the other parts of the equation, if you will, both marriage and sex revealed to us more clearly in Genesis chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, flip one page over, one chapter over, to Genesis chapter 2. So, so, so the emphasis in Genesis chapter 1, 
children, right? It's a part of God's design. It's a part of God's plan. And it was mandated for Adam and Eve. Well, how does that happen? Well, let's take a look at Genesis chapter 2, a more specific account of God's creation of the institution of marriage. In Genesis chapter 2, we're told that God created Adam first, right? We know that. He, he creates Adam out, out of the dust of the ground and forms Adam. And then uh, we have this interesting and somewhat humorous story, as far as I'm concerned, where God then brings before Adam all the animals of the earth. And it's Adam's job to name them, right? And, and through this process of, of naming uh, the, Adam, uh, the animals, we, we see that there, there's really no partner. There's, there's no other human being, right? There's no one like Adam. And so God is building this need in anticipation for a fulfillment of that need. And so we see that then he puts Adam to sleep and he takes a rib. And of course, lo and behold, we have the first woman. And God creates Eve and, and, and he brings Eve to Adam. And so in Genesis 2, we see the very first marriage ceremony. And unlike our day, where, where sort of the, the father of the bride walks the bride you know, down the aisle, well, God is sort of walking the bride, if you will, down the marriage aisle and presenting her to Adam. And if you look at his response in, in chapter 2, he's, he's excited about it. It's good, right? Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And then in verse 24, we get what is a key verse as we think about what marriage is and God's design for marriage, God's institution for marriage. It's, it's like Moses is telling the story, and then as the, the narrator, he steps aside, and he says, you see what's happening here, this first marriage? Let me tell you the implications of what you're seeing in this story for every other marriage that comes along. And so we see in verse 24, Moses through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, asks, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Now, there is a significant God-ordained order that we see as God defines marriage for us. Just see it, my friends. That is why a man, number one, does what? What's the first verb? That is why a man leaves his father and mother. So first of all, there is a leaving that must take place for a marriage to occur. Here it's the man, but certainly the woman is implied, right? Marriage is initiated by a pursuing male, and both man and woman then leave the primary relationship within the family context, right? They leave their father, and they leave their mother, and they sever the ties of dependence, both emotionally and physically and financially, to join with their spouse. There is a new family unit being created. There's a leaving. What else does the text say? That's why a man leaves his father and mother, and the NIV translates here, and is united to his wife. Uh, Some translations might say, and cleaves to his wife, and that rhymes, so we'll go with that, right? There's a leaving that that occurs, and then there is a cleaving that occurs. This, This word in Hebrew is covenant language, and friends, it refers to the fact that marriage is a covenant, between a man and a woman. And it is um, inherent in the word for covenant is a stickiness, for lack of a better word. It is a binding together of a man and woman, male and female, for a lifetime until death do us part. 
So there was a leaving that God has designed. There is a cleaving that God has designed, this covenant that we enter into. And then finally, there is a sexual union, a consummation of that covenant. Notice what the text says. A man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Now, certainly this implies sexual union. It's, it's not um, just sexual union. It is a uniting, a, a, a oneness in which a couple shares all aspects of life. But one cannot deny the primary reference is a sexual one here. And friends, let me just simply point out, I, I can't be stressed enough, there is an order here. There is an order to God's design. There is a leaving. There is a marriage covenant. And then there is sex. And not the other way around. That is how God has designed it. And it is good and for our benefit. And so, friends, when we put these two texts together, Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, what do we see? Well, I think very clearly we see that God has linked together three things. He has linked together marriage and he has linked together marriage with sex, and he has linked together sex with having children. Do do you see that in the text, right? This is God's plan, marriage and sex and childbearing. And so here, the question for our purposes, as we ponder the question of of the use of of birth control, is this one. Very clearly for Adam and Eve, uh, having children was not an option, right? This, This was God's commandment. To them, uh, was that unique? Right? Was that was that unique for Adam and Eve? Having children was a must, but the question really then becomes for us: Is is it a must for every marriage that comes after Adam and Eve, or was that a sort of unique situation? Let me let me put it just maybe a little more clearly, maybe a little more bluntly for our for our purposes as we ponder birth control and and contraception. Another way to ask the question is this. In the context of marriage, must every sexual encounter have the possibility of procreation? That's the the real question, right, that we have to ponder from the Bible, is, is in marriage, must every sexual encounter allow for the possibility of procreation. That, that is the question. Now, no, no, we have to be honest and frank. Christians here have disagreed. Uh, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching, uh, people who hold the text high, uh, there is disagreement here. In fact, if you're familiar or maybe you have Catholic friends or maybe you grew up in the Catholic Church, then, then you know that the answer to our question, that question, is yes, Right? That is the official doctrine and dogma of the Catholic Church. They, they say, no, uh, there is not an appropriate uh, use for birth control. Um, several Protestants agree. They, they agree with that theology and, and, the, and the fundamental ideas behind it. While, while many, many other Protestants, they answer the question, no. They say no to that particular question. Friends, I'll lay out what I think the scripture teaches. I believe the answer is no. I believe the answer is no. And it's because I don't believe that procreation, according to the scripture, is the only purpose for sex in marriage. Just say that again. I don't believe that scripture reveals that having children is the only purpose for sex within marriage. In fact, I think I could make a a really good argument, and I won't take the time to, to, to read these verses. I'll simply just sort of refer you 
to them, but, but I think that the scriptures reveal at least two more purposes for sexual activity within the context of marriage. And the first is pleasure. The first is pleasure. And that is that God has designed sex within the context of marriage to be pleasurable. God doesn't frown upon the pleasure that a man and a woman in the context of marriage enjoy and experience in the context of marriage. Friends, if you think that way, I I challenge you to read through the book of Song of Solomon and come to any other conclusion. We see it very clearly there. We get Proverbs like Proverbs chapter 5, which encourages a man to enjoy the body of his wife, and and vice versa. And so clearly, sex is intended in God's design for marriage for procreation. That's very clear, but it's it's not just for procreation. It's for pleasure, but also uh, an often overlooked element of sex within the context of marriage is what I will call protection. Protection of the marriage covenant against infidelity. Go home today and read 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul outlines the idea that he wishes that all in the church of Corinth would be single and celibate like him. But he says, if you can't and if you burn with lust, well then go ahead and get married. And he goes on to talk about how the idea of of sex within marriage is a layer of protection against the lusts of the flesh that desire sexual activity. And and so there's a sense in which sex within marriage, it it is meant for the protection and the pleasure of uh, within the marriage context. But certainly also it is meant for procreation. And so we have, I think, three revealed purposes for sex within marriage. And I don't think one is dominant. I don't think one is to the exclusion of the other. And so with that theology in mind, I think we answer the question that I just posed as, as, as no. As no, every encounter within the marriage context must not necessarily allow for the possibility of procreation. I think that the implication for birth control is that this. Its occasional use is not inherently against God's design. I want to quote a commentator for you here. He says, Scripture does not directly address the issue of birth control. Rather, its emphasis is that children are gifts from God, and happy is the man whose quiver is full of them. Of course, citing Psalms 127, verse 5, into that we say amen. But then he writes this, but but in reality, not everyone has the same size quiver. In other words, not everyone has the same capacity for a large family. He writes, the wise use of birth control... As a general principle to limit the number of children, the timing of children, and perhaps to postpone starting a family until a couple is better prepared to be parents should not, he says, be frowned upon. In a similar vein, one of my professors at Dallas Seminary, Dr. Sandra Glahn, has studied and has written exclusively on this particular subject. And she writes this, does the Bible say anything on the subject? Not specifically, she writes. Yes, it says that children are a gift from the Lord. But they are not the main gift or the only gift, he writes. And using, she writes, and using contraception does not necessarily mean one is refusing the gift. And so in summary, I think on point number one, as we consider this first guardrail, a biblical understanding of, of God's connection between marriage and sex and, and children, the best understanding between the relationship then uh, of sex within marriage and reproduction in marriage is that a couple should be open is that a couple should be open to having children and allow for that possibility at some point in their marriage. 
but that there are times and seasons and reasons why contraception should be allowed. So, guardrail number one. But let me point us to another guardrail. If that's the guardrail on the left, then this might be the guardrail on the right as we ponder the question of birth control. The second consideration must be the question of our motivation. Because motivations matter, do they not? They matter in the scriptures. Uh, God cares about why we do what we do. And so we, I think every, every married couple needs to seriously consider uh, asking themselves this question. Why do we want to use contraception? Why do we want to use birth control? Couples, especially Christian couples, clearly need to evaluate their reasons for the use of birth control. So, if you have your Bibles open, uh, flip ahead to chapter 38 in the book of Genesis, please. As you're doing that, I'm going to get a drink of water here. Genesis chapter 38. There we get, oh, a sad, interesting, confusing at times uh, story. So let's flesh this out because I think it, uh, it addresses this guardrail of proper motivation. So let me just set up the scene. We're going to start in verse 6. But what we see in verses 1 through 5 is the story of the life of a man by the name of Judah. Now, now you may be familiar with that, that, that name, because, or you may be more familiar with, with his daddy. His daddy's name was Jacob. Remember Jacob, right, the conniver? Uh, he had how many sons, remember? Help me out. Twelve? Twelve sons. Twelve sons, and Judah is one of those sons. And we're told the story of how Judah found a wife, and that Judah had three sons. Ur, Onan, and Shelah. I know, sounds girly, but hey, whatever. Ur, Onan, and Shelah. So we pick up the story in verse 6. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn. And her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of of the Lord. So the Lord put him to death. It's a whole nother sermon for her, a whole nother time. Verse 8. Then Judah said to Onan, so Judah approaches son number two, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But, verse 9, Onan knew that the child would not be his, that is sort of legally speaking, inheritance speaking, So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. How do you think God's going to like this? Verse 10. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Okay, so we step back, and here we are in the 21st century, and we're like, what is happening here? Right? What's going on? Okay. Let me just explain this as simply as I can. So for starters, what Judah commanded his son Onan to do would later become a revealed law from God for his people. In other words, what it's not a law now, but, but it's going to become a, a law for God's people later. And it's known as Leverite marriage. This was when a man was to marry his deceased brother's wife in order to provide his brother with an heir and thus continue on the family line, which was absolutely vital for God's plan and his people. And not only that, but by doing that, he would provide financial stability for, uh, for, the, for, for his brother's widow. And so had Onan done what his dad told him to do, 
had Onan uh, done that, his own children, right, his own offspring from his first wife would receive less of an inheritance. In other words, if Onan would have done this, he would have suffered his inheritance, his name, his family would have suffered financially. And so what Onan does is he greedily uses a form of birth control, a natural form of birth control nonetheless, but he uses a form of birth control in order to, first of all, exploit his brother-in-law's wife's body while guaranteeing both his own financial future and her financial destitution. That's what was happening. And so when God looked on his actions, clearly he does not agree. And so we look at this because some people look at this text and say, this is clearly a prohibition against all birth control. But friends, I don't believe that is the case. I think this is a warning against using a form or forms of birth control for the wrong reasons, with improper motivation, for selfish or sinful or even sexually immoral reasons, because he was doing it for all of those reasons, right? That's what was going on. And so this applies to our question because it is an example, I think, of using birth control for the wrong reasons, right? God clearly condemned that. On this point, Dr. Bob Deffenbaugh says this. Personally, I think, I think that we do the text in injustice if we conclude that any and every form of birth control is sin on the basis of this passage alone. Birth control in any form would have been evil for Onan, But that is not the same as saying it is wrong in any form for us. He goes on to say birth control, or for any matter, any act, is evil if it is motivated by self-seeking and is clearly an act of disobedience. I believe that one should fully consider his or her reasons for birth control, but I cannot go step beyond this to say that this is always wrong. And so, friends... We as followers of Christ, we need to think about the reasons, our motivations as Christian couples uh, for the use um, of birth control. Why, why do we want to use it? Friends, I think it's hard to be dogmatic here. It's hard to be dogmatic. I think it's, we must be careful to judge others, other people's motives. But, but friends, we should be very careful to judge our own motives. So, so what could be some improper motivation here? Well, I'll just maybe try to give a few examples I think one uh, solid example that we can fall upon is the use of birth control in a way to have sex outside of marriage to ensure that you don't become pregnant. Clearly, that is uh, against God's design, not only for sex, but for birth control. I think that's clear from the text. Secondly, couples today, I think, uh, although it's rare, but some couples choose to use birth control to prevent and forfeit ever having children. In other words, they don't ever want to allow the possibility of children for a whole, a whole host of reasons. They have careers that they want to pursue. They, they have a certain standard of living that they know they can't maintain if, if they have children. They, they want to enjoy their time together or their hobbies. And maybe they don't want the, the responsibility that inevitably comes with having children and certainly the loss of freedom that comes with children. I think this likely fits the bill of, of, of the selfish category. That is, you are refusing to ever allow for God's clear design to link sex in marriage with the possibility of having children. I think that's one example. But when we wander into the, 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 the sphere of couples using birth control to sort of limit the size of their families, in, in my opinion, it gets much muddier. 
it, it becomes much grayer. While certainly there are legitimate reasons and circumstances for limiting uh, the size of your family, there are financial considerations, there are time considerations, there are sometimes health considerations and the like, I think we need to be honest in evaluating our own motivations as married couples for the use of birth control. So, guardrail number one, right? Marriage and sex and children and the three purposes of marriage Procreation, which is one. Pleasure and protection are the other. The, the, the other guardrail could be, what is our motivation here? And we need to be honest about that. And then there's a third guardrail. And if there's a left guardrail and a right guardrail, well, my illustration breaks down. Let's just say it goes on both the left and the right all the time. Okay? Let's say it's an additional guardrail that guards the left and the right of the road. And it is the guardrail of God's sovereignty and our responsibility. So when we chew and ponder this question of the use of birth control, I think we need to consider the paradoxical truth, which will be a whole other sermon for this series, by the way. It's coming in the future. The paradoxical truth that God is both sovereign over conception and birth, and we are responsible for our sexual decisions and our family planning. You with me? God is both sovereign over conception and birth, and we are responsible for our actions. So let's begin with the fact that God is sovereign. Just sharing very personally here, as it came to the point for Shelley and I to start consider the use of contraception, our, our own decisions as it related to our family size and whether we wanted to have more children or not. Um, the conversation sort of kept boiling down to this simple statement, our affirmation that God is in control. Our affirmation that God is in control over our lives, whether it's when we wanted to conceive and and we couldn't for a time period, or whether we didn't want to conceive, right? Uh, We were considering limiting our family size through through contraception. We, we boiled it down to this, this fundamental biblical truth that, that God is sovereign. And we talked about how it was our job to seek the Lord's face and to pray and to ask for his will. God, would you get us pregnant now? We, we really want this. Or God, we're, we want to choose to, to limit this. But ultimately, your will be done. Ultimately, we, we trust you for this. Whether it was getting pregnant or not getting pregnant, right? And that there was nothing that could thwart God's will. Dr. Constable, in his notes, speaks of this balance. He said, God leaves the choice of how many children we have and when up to us, though he sovereignly controls this, of course. You may think that's double talk. That's Bible talk. That's how the Bible presents many, many issues. So we kind of thought of it this way as we pondered the use of contraception. Can anything really prevent God Almighty from doing what he wills? And the answer must be no, right? In other words, if God desires that a child come into the world, can any surgery, can any pill, can any activity stop that from occurring? Absolutely not. God is sovereign. Think of it this way. Can God do what he wants? Daniel 4.35 answers this clearly for us. The text says, All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have 
you done? Friends, we see this throughout the scriptures, uh, in particular with women who, who, who wanted to have children and they couldn't, right? Is God sovereign over the womb? Why don't you ask Sarah that question? Why don't you ask Rebecca that question? Why don't you ask Rachel or Samson's mom or Hannah or Elizabeth or for that matter, Mary, the mother of our Lord Jesus Christ? Is God sovereign over the womb? Absolutely. But, but that doesn't mean we're not responsible. It doesn't mean that we don't make real moral choices and real choices about contraception and about not using contraception. And not only that, but friends, let me sort of close with this. Um, When we consider as Christian couples the use and and the methods of contraception, if we so choose to go that route, we must be extremely diligent and absolutely careful to ask our doctors and to do the research to make sure that the method of contraception and birth control that we are using does not commit abortion. Let me be absolutely clear here. It is our responsibility to make sure of that. The Bible teaches that life begins at conception, which simply means when the sperm unites with the egg and it becomes fertilized, what do you have? It's not an embryo. It's a a human being. You have a human being at that point. And, And the reason I say that is because there are forms of contraception out there that instead of preventing the sperm from uniting the egg in all sorts of ways, what they do is they actually destroy a fertilized egg. That's murder. We can't do that. We mustn't do that. And so just as a plea, as your pastor and as one who is in the same boat, please, please be careful. There are many birth control options that values human life. And so if you're going to choose that, then then do one of those. So, I recall a trip when I was a teenager. And my family and I, with my cousins and my grandma and grandpa, we all drove from central Texas to the Colorado mountains. And it was a long trip, and we carpooled. And uh, I had never seen the mountains before. In fact, I had probably never been for about, oh, 200 feet above sea level. And so I, and, and, and not only that, but um, I'm scared of heights. I don't like heights. Climbing a ladder makes me afraid. And so put two and two together, and when you drive in the mountains for the first time as about a 12-year-old, I was rather scared. I was petrified, okay? I'll admit it. Um, I I recall getting my pillow and sticking it over my head so that I did not have to look out the car. I I was very afraid. But one of the things I recall is that uh, in in Colorado on the mountains, you can look over and it's like if you go off the road, you plummet to your imminent death. And sometimes they use guardrails. It's great. Right? Guardrails is a good idea. But, but I noticed in my 12-year-old self that there were times when there would be like a curve and there was no guardrail. There's no guardrail. I'm like, why would you not have a guardrail there, right? I value my life. I'm terrified. There needs to be guardrails right here. And you can see uh, on some of the guardrails, color. Like people actually used these things. Not on purpose, of course. But, but, but they, they kept them on the straight and narrow, right? <laughs> Friends... I pray that these three guardrails that we've seen from the scriptures serve in a similar fashion. They are God's gifts to us. They are God's instructions to us to sort of keep us on the path of this very modern and practical question, the use of contraception. We're guided and protected by a biblical understanding of sex and marriage and children, a proper motivation 
why we do that. All the while, we have this dual guardrails of God's sovereignty and our responsibility. And when we do those things, I think we will be on a path that is pleasing to God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, may the words that I have said be faithful and true to your word. And Lord, if so, then be well pleased to work on our hearts accordingly. We pray in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. See you next week, guys.